Good afternoon, welcome to the panel, RNZ National, and look for the panel on iHeart, on Apple, and on Spotify. Uh, if you want to go back and listen, or it's online, rnz.co.nz forward slash the panel. Now, RNZ board member Jason Arke has resigned following criticism of his public commentary on former Justice Minister Kiritapa Wellen after just 26 days on the board, telling the board chairman Jim Mather, I'm out, constrained because I'm on the Crown Board. Also, footage has emerged today of the damage to Kerry Allen's car after she hit a parked ute, shunting it metres forward and leaving both vehicles wrecked. Allen resigned as Minister on Monday and won't stand for re-election after being charged with a careless use of a motor vehicle and refusing to accompany a police officer. Now, some have suggested MPs undergo mental health checks and I thought well what are the issues in terms of assessing a worker's fitness let's take a look at that angle with us is Alison Meltzer part of the employment law team at Hesketh Henry Alison Kia ora Kia ora now right well as it stands in terms of assessing a worker's fitness you would just assume that the employee is telling the truth right that's generally a good place to start from. Yes, um, I think generally you can expect uh, you can expect your employees to tell the truth, and indeed uh, employees are required to tell the truth under the duty of good faith. Um, and employers, of course, are required to tell the truth yeah. as, as well. Um, I guess the difficulty, though, is that perhaps in the case of mental health issues, uh, an employee. Uh, might be telling the truth when they say that they feel fine and that they feel fit to work, um, but that might not necessarily be the case. Oh, we, were, we were having a chat about this in the office, actually, because it throws open some sort of, sort of some quite complex questions. It's very easy to throw it as a headline, you know, you should get uh, mental health checks. But what issues would be raised if... A prospective employer said, look, um, you passed the first hurdle, we're interested in you, but a couple of other things, uh, we will require a police check, but we'd also like to have a mental health warrant of fitness from your GP. What are the concerns um, raised there? Yeah, well, like you say, it raises um, a, a myriad of concerns. I don't know what I'd say. No, no. Well, exactly. Um, it's it's a very difficult question indeed, and it's a difficult legal question as well because there's a whole um, raft of legislation that sort of comes into play there. Um, you've got issues around the Privacy Act, obviously, and whether yeah. those that's information that an employer is actually lawfully entitled to be collecting from an employee. You've got issues around the Human Rights Act because, of course, discriminating against somebody on the basis of a health condition is prima facie going to be unlawful. Mm. Um, and you've got issues, I suppose, around... Um, uh, figuring out uh, from a health and safety perspective, uh, making sure that you're not going to be putting somebody in harm's way. Uh, so <laughs> it's a really, really difficult question. Um, and normally what we'd say about asking uh, medical questions or asking for a medical assessment before somebody is employed or as a condition of employment, the really key thing is that it's going to have to be directly 
related to the job that the person is applying for. Right. Um, and you're going to have to be ready <laughs> as an employer to demonstrate how that is linked and why it is necessary for you to be asking those questions. Yes. In the uh, same way that it's necessary for you to be um, to, to justify why you're asking questions about any other element of a, of a person's life. So, you know, whether they're married, how old they are, all of those sorts of things, you're going to need to have a really good reason to be asking uh, those questions. Yeah, here's one. A uh, uh, listener says, it would be very easy to weaponize mental health assessments against an employee. Nalini, what question do you have or uh, comment? Oh, hi, Alison. I, I agree with you. This is a quite a complicated issue. And I'm sort of thinking you take on a new staff and treat it as a health and safety issue. You look out for some qualified assessment of the staff's mental health status and uh, at, the sta- at the same time dodging any litigation issues you might you know, mm. be faced with. Um, and the employee takes on a job wanting to do their best and pushing themselves as hard as they can. So, you know, there's a fine balance between the two, and I'm really not sure how any employer or an employee would handle this situation. Uh, you know, asking themselves, "Am I men- do I have the mental health capacity to perform or does my employee have the mental health capacity to mm-hmm. deliver? Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And obviously most employees and most employers are not medically qualified to answer that question. Um, and I suppose often you'll see in a job application form um, something along the lines of um, are there any uh, illnesses or disabilities that you have that might impact on your ability to do the job? Um, and, you know, that's quite a, a common question and it's a really pat question, um, but it's actually something that's really quite difficult to answer, and particularly in the case of mental health issues, because mm. we know that um, in many cases there are sort of peaks and troughs, if you like, in terms of a person's mental um, health capability and their well-being. So at the time they answer the question, um, they might be absolutely 100% honest when they say, no, I don't believe I've got anything that's going to impact my ability to do the job. Um, But that might not be the case in a couple of months or or a couple of weeks' time even. I'll just bring Salwin in. You know, and, and let's look at it from the point of view, too, of once a person is in the position or mm-hmm. something like that. And if we look at it from a political point of view, we all know that uh, with respect to politicians, it's not an open-ended contract, is it? So let's just acknowledge those kind of things. And then there's the issue relating to the stresses that may be dis- just um, uh, presented at different times. And usually, you know, in my view, in my experience, you see people that will be uh, showing extreme behaviours, and you look behind that. What, what's going on here? You know, stresses or pressures will be behind that often, um, and many of the causes of those are multi. You know, multi. Um, but mm. generally, if you if you come back to this, and a person has perhaps taken time out from the workplace, whether they be a minister, a politician, or anyone else, the difficulties of the transition to work as the person comes back. And, and that, I think, is where a lot of the political um, scope at the, uh, and examination at the moment is centering and, and questioning whether or not various people had exp- uh, uh, shown the right judgment relating to 
Um, for example, you know, the minister, former minister, Kiri Allen, coming back into her job. And that, I think there, in a political sense, particularly with cabinet ministers, there's huge problems with a transition back to work where, you know, you know, like if, if a person worked in the health system, for example, and maybe there's an injury that's happened in work or, you know, whatever form or an illness that has occurred, there's often an arrangement where the person transitions back toward that goal of full-time equivalent. Now, within a ministerial office, there are huge pressures that would hamper that. And look, I'm just wondering, Alison, what your view is on all of that and giving a context to what would be the utopia, the ideal situation, should that be able to be achieved? Yeah, I guess uh, the the political aspects of it are probably a little bit outside of my scope because MPs are not employees. Uh, they hold an elected office and there are certain rules that apply to them that don't apply to normal employees and inverted commas. Um, but, I mean, from a from an employment perspective, absolutely, a person's return to work uh, following a period of... Um, sickness or injury, um, whether that be physical or psychological, um, is definitely something that you would expect an employer to to manage um, and to be aware of. And there is most likely going to be um, an ability for employers and probably an obligation for employers to be ensuring that a person is fit to work uh, when they return from a period of unwellness. Um, the, the difficulty though, as we've just discussed, is that it's not always easy to tell uh, whether somebody is in fact fit for work or, or not. Yeah. Hey, very good to have you here, Alison Kiora. Thank you very much for uh, your time on that. That's Alison Meltzer, part of the employment law team at Hesketh Henry. It is 18 past four. Very nice to have you uh, on the program, uh, everybody. I really appreciate your feedback coming through. Now, another news repairs are underway after a sinkhole caused a 100-year-old pipe opened uh, opening in Auckland's Freeman's Bay area. It'll take several months to fix, says the Auckland Council. The stormwater pipe running under it will also be fully replaced. So that hole, it's estimated to be around uh, 1.6 metres deep, 3.5 metres long, about 2.5 metres wide, opened up on College Hill uh, opposite Auckland's police headquarters. So it's just going up the hill and then you go into Ponsonby Road there. Uh, there have been astonishing examples internationally of sinkholes. In fact, I spent much of the afternoon, well, not much of it, but a couple of hours, uh, going down the wormhole with sinkholes. There was an (laughs) incredible one in Chile last year. It could fit the Washington Monument inside. I became very interested in sinkholes today. That uh, sinkhole is over 650 feet deep. Extraordinary. With us is Professor John Tukey from uh, AUT. Professor Tukey, welcome. Good afternoon. What is it about sinkholes, John, that put the fear of God up us? The fact that they could be growing underneath our feet and we don't know about it because there's no reason for us to know about it necessarily um, on the basis of where we live and all the rest of it. it they, can, they can literally open up in all sorts of different places, at least expected. Yeah, I saw one today, John. It was in Guatemala, mm. and the sinkhole, it was about the size of a basketball. Uh, it opened up underneath a person's bed. 
Yeah, there's there's all these sorts of um, I wouldn't say horror stories, but there's all these sorts of things. Actually, reality is they're they're relatively uh, infrequent. They occur as a result of uh, natural water action underneath. Um, uh, well, underneath ground through either natural flowing um, uh, tributaries of streams and so on, or alternatively, and very often in this case, as we talk about College Hill, it's in the instance of uh, a, a void being built up around a, a leaking pipe, and that's very, very common in cities. And that happens quite a bit. Oh. Okay, so this is a fairly common occurrence. Um, it's it's common in the sense in, in the in the global sweep of things. Yep, it's pretty common, but it's not happening every five minutes. We're not talking about sinkhole again. It's not <laughs> happening in that that way. Um, it does happen. It it happens in cities because we have a lot of buried assets that have the ability to channel water down them. Um, and, and when they spring leaks or whatever, they 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 um, start to liquefy the um, the loose material and the badly compacted stuff around the fill, and you create a void. And as the void gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the ability to uh, take load on top of it, whether through foot traffic or alternatively through uh, vehicle traffic, declines. And eventually, you get there's a breakthrough point, mm. and the uh, you end up breaking through the top of the void, and now you've got a sinkhole. And there you go. Nalini experienced any sinkholes no, but, in your time? No, but I'm a feet firmly on the ground person, and this is yeah. nightmare material for me. Yeah. Um, John, I was just wondering, is there anything we can learn from the old days of making roads, building roads, that maybe could help us avoid sinkholes in the middle of Auckland City? Um, look, the, the, the key problems here are related to, again, if you're dealing with buried assets, you've got to bury the assets somewhere. So if you've got a water pipe, you've got a stormwater pipe, you, any of these sorts of water reticulation um, mechanisms, whatever it may be, then they have to be put somewhere. And it's actually easier for, for installation and maintenance to actually have them under roads than it is to have them under buildings uh, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. It's easier to get through a road than it is to get through a building. And so you end up with a situation where, you know, most of the buried assets like drains, sewers, uh, water um, uh, provision and what have you all tends to go down the, uh, the, the the main routes that we have through the city. Um, so it's not necessarily straightforward to deal with. Um, we, I mean, there are certain issues that you can deal with with regard to ground penetrating radar, so you can pick up on voids and things like this, which you, you know, uh, but it becomes another maintenance cost associated with city uh, infrastructure generally. Um, you know, are we doing this on a you know regular basis? How uh-huh. regularly do we need to do it? And the how regularly do we need to do it is a big issue because the the sorts of void that's just been talked about here in College Hill. You know, you're talking about something where the, the, the pipe itself has been installed for many years um, and it's taken potentially many years for it to, to develop into a point where it's criticality. A 100-year-old pipe. I find that quite... You're, you live in Auckland, so, and I find that quite astonishing. Mm. Yeah, one, they, I mean, you've just highlighted a lot, a lot of the concerns that I have on this, you know, and I'm kind of thinking how many of yeah. these kind of problems are sitting there waiting and begging for a budget to come along or a brave council to come along and say, here's the budget for things that no one can see as a problem <laughs> and we don't know if it's a problem until the future when it may become a problem, <laughs> you know, I, and, and I, I, this is what we're doing. I, 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 other- I would caution... I would caution a little bit of calm and and, uh, and reflection here. We've had one instance over the course of a long period of time. I can't recall the last one that occurred. Yeah, I was just going to interject on that one too. 
Um, but down on the waterfront where there's more sedimentary type of um, ge- uh, 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 strata, if you like, um, there's been a lot of work going down there and I understand that that was quite unstable under there. I know it's not a so-called, but there's certainly areas of Auckland which are potentially compromised and I wonder if there is budget at council level or at central government level to address such things on a wider scale if needed. John? Um, well, thereby hangs an interesting tale. Uh, I, I would, I would put a little bit of calm on this one, on the basis of we don't see this on a on a you know a day by day basis. It occurs on an ad hoc basis. The good news is we generally tend to get a bit of an indicator in the sense of you'll start to see sagging occur within a particular zone ahead of a catastrophic collapse. The catastrophic collapse type scenario is relatively infrequently occurring. It's uh, it, you know, you, obviously there's a big, uh, significant thing. Wallace, um, can I ask? It, it's ob- yeah, jump, can I sorry. ask a quick question? Yeah, John? sure. Sorry, John. John um, jump in, Lee. John, I know this from experience because we've got it on our olive grove. Countrysides are littered or filled with field drains, right? Very, very old field drains. Yeah. Um, do they pose any risk? Um, there is a potential risk, but it, uh, again, with, with regard to field drains, it tends not to be um, so catastrophic. And the reason being, field drains generally are in the the the, um, the void. The the pipe itself is usually between four and six inches. Uh, it's 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 not uh, you know huge things. You know, in this instance, you've got a pipe that I was looking at some of the the, um, the sections of pipe that were going in as replacement to facilitate flow. And you're talking about not not quite a meter across. You know, you're talking about a big pipe, which in turn implies big pressures, which in turn applies to a significant uh, effect in terms of the uh, of the potential washout and scouring that's taking place around the think uh, development. Very good, John. So. Nice as always to have you on the program, Kira. That's uh, Professor John Tuki from uh, AUT. Uh, we had a sinkhole. Someone says open up in the road at the top of our driveway. I noticed the road felt bouncy, so I went to the local council to report it. When I got home, the rubbish truck had fallen through it. We live in Thames, so an archaeologist was called in to see if it was connected to old mining operations. It wasn't. So, yeah, your sinkhole stories, <laughs> most welcome this afternoon, 26 past four. Meanwhile, I've got to say, uh, there's been a little bit of feedback around um, your, I've been thinking, and that is on the, well, the pink wafers, right? Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, the, someone says the pink wafers were the only reason why anyone was happy to revive a box of Griffin Selection at Christmas time. I concur. All, all the other biscuits were just padding. Exactly. Now, Still sitting there three months later <laughs> <laughs> with ants eating them. Let me ask the, 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 the panel, family nationwide, what was your favorite biscuit? In the Griffin's box, it really was the pink wafer, wasn't it? Was there any mm. other biscuit of note? Let me know, 2101. Because I don't think there was, was there? But I must come to this. Can anyone remember it? Robert? Well, yeah. An article in the Sydney Morning Herald asks whether or not we call time on slovenly attire for air travel, that there was a time when you were dressed to get on a plane. Well, these days, as anything goes, Track pants, tick. Shorts, tick. Neck pillow, tick. T-shirts and Crocs and open sandals, tick. Where did everyone's self-respect go? Says one here, I might as well be going to the gym. 
said one punter. Um, so it says, look, it's not about going back to the golden age, but it's about why don't we dress smartly? Uh, why don't we, dare I say it, dress elegantly as it was a thing? What do you think, Sauron? Because it's like going to the gym these days. But I can recall, it, it wasn't that long ago we would make a little bit of effort. Yeah, I guess so. I can remember way back when uh, there was um, somebody down the street that was heading off on the OE going via Australia. Um, the whole family turned out to wave them on on their way. Um, they were dressed all right, apparently, but I heard from one of my sisters that one of the other family members that attended the goodbye session was only dressed in jeans and horrified, you know, kind of looks all around. That was someone who wasn't even travelling. They are just there to say goodbye. So, yeah, look, time to move on. But there's this wonderful quote on the you know that article on the News Hub site on exactly this, and it says... Who gives a stuff if it offends the snotty stuck-up section? And I just thought, <laughs> man, that captures the whole thing, doesn't it? And that, and they kind of the, the point is pushed by this person. And they say, if you were crammed up in what what most people call cattle class, you know, on a long haul trip, and you're basically sitting on top of each other, who cares what the person's dressed like next to you? You know, you've got to be comfortable. And we all, we, those of us that have been privileged enough to have travelled long all that thing about comforts, what's primarily on your mind, that's where I'm on it, Wallace. Do you agree, or do you think there is a case, not going back to the 50s where one would wear their uh, very finest with a tie and a, uh, or a cravat or pearls, we're not talking about that, but just make an effort, you're going overseas. Nalini. Oh, Wallace, I wasn't sure who you were asking. Yeah, I agree, I agree. But it's called comfort wear, isn't it, for flying? Comfort wear, which is what you'd wear to the gym, which is your leotards and your... And, and a lot of people find it quite uncomfortable. Look, look at leave alone, um, you know, wonder whether it is actually comfortable for long travel. But, I mean, look, the the whole decorum is generally dropping in so many areas, you know. Go to weddings and people turn up in jeans and you think... Think of the bride and groom. This exactly. is a special day. You could exactly, have, you, know, you see. You go to a funeral and somebody's, you know, casually dressed. So we're generally dressing down. I think it's um, mm. it's a statement was, of the world. Just we one live other in thing, I, I would I would suggest that if if the quality of the cuisine that is brought to your seat that was slightly elevated beyond <laughs> a, a plastic cup with water in it. <laughs> Actually, then maybe people would make the effort. <laughs> Actually, I <laughs> absolutely was, fair enough. I I once flew back from Singapore uh, to New Zealand in my young days. You know, when I was working and I was sent on travel, and I decided that I would actually dress down. I didn't realise I actually had a t-shirt on, which had a couple of moth-eaten areas on the on the base <laughs> of it, and um, I was followed good part of the airport mm. by people who were a little unsure as to who I was and what my intentions were. So, Goodness. you know, maybe those days need to come back. <laughs> well, Lou sums it up. Uh, nothing worse than sitting crammed next to a large pair of hairy legs for 16 hours Ooh, on a plane. Or smelly socks. You see? I, I have yeah. my sympathies on that one. Yeah. 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 Uh, you're yeah. on the panel, by the way. Uh, someone says, yes, there was one other biscuit that competed with the pink wafer in the Griffin's box. What was it? It was the chocolate fingers. Yeah, oh, 